Well, can you believe it? We're already nearing and at the end of January, first month of 2023. Yeah, let's get through January, right? Warmer weather and nicer temperatures soon on the horizon. We'll make it there. But we began this year with the series, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, because the decisions we make have a huge impact on our lives. And we want to start the year on a good foundation so that 2023 would be a year where we truly live making better decisions with fewer regrets. We're basing the series on a book by the same name, by the author Andy Stanley, an author and pastor. And, and so a lot of credit to um, these great principles as well coming from that book. And today we're going to wrap up this series. We're going to look at, we've been looking at five different questions that if we ask these questions when we're in the midst of making decisions and really slow down enough to think through these things, we're going to make better decisions. And so let's go over these real quick to make sure that, that uh, you know what these are, or maybe you're here for the first time today or joining online. Uh, this is where we've been going, and you can always go back and listen to the previous messages. So we began with the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself Really? And remember, that foundation is that if we're going to make good decisions, we have to have the honesty to say, why am I making this decision? That we don't deceive ourselves, we don't lie to ourselves, that we're honest. Then came the legacy question. What story do I want to tell, right? We're each writing a story with our lives. And so our decisions shape that story. Do I want to be a liar for life and, and, and have things that I have to hide and, 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 and don't want to share with others? Or do I want to write a kind of story that's going to be one that I want to share and, and, and pass on to others? Then came the conscience question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? We're making that decision and something in our gut just isn't sitting right. Something in our conscience, maybe it's something within, maybe it's somebody that we love and respect who says, are you sure about that? And something goes off in us, that's a sign and a gift from God to slow down and to rethink and really pray through that decision. Then we looked at the maturity question last week, right? What's the wise thing to do? Wisdom thinking through, making these decisions. And we talked about eight different things that you can process as you're making, uh, going through to make a wise decision. So how do we make decisions in that way? And today we come to what might be one of the hardest questions, and it's the relationship question. And this question is, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? If you're like me, maybe when you see that statement, Maybe you wonder, did any of you wonder, that doesn't feel quite right. What does love require? Does that sound like love? What does love require? I mean, love is what I want to do. What is, love is what I feel like doing. Love is what feels, I don't, it shouldn't require anything of me. It should be love. Well, this, uh, this past uh, weekend, just yesterday and the, the, the night before on Friday night, um, we celebrated my daughter's birthday, my third oldest daughter, Annika. She just turned 14, and she's in eighth grade at, at, uh, at uh, Davis Middle School. And so she, we had a birthday party for her, and we themed, had a theme, or a part of that was uh, to do a murder mystery. I'm, is, that, is that appropriate for me to do that um, for us? So the, the kids, they came in character, and it was really fun. They dressed up. They came in character to do that. That was the plan. But early, and so we've been planning that, and my wife is, is the party planner for the, the kids' parties, and I usually just, you know, how can I help? And, uh, and so that morning, she's like, you know what, Mark, actually, would you, um, I want you to host the murder party. Would you do that? And I was like, <laughs> really? Like, I got to read through all that, and then I got to, like, that's, like, how long is this going to go? I'll probably take, like, an hour, hour and a half to do that part. And so, of course, I said, yes, I'd love to do that. Um, so I prepared for that, and that night when, uh, the, you know, the girls had all arrived, and there was already a lot of chaos and fun and laughter, and, and, and many times during those parties, at that point when the girls are all having their fun, I just kind of 
slip away, you know, to someplace a little more quiet, and, and, and there's pop in once in a while, but now it was time for, you know, it was time for the, you know, to host the murder party. So at that point, um, that sounds really bad. The, the mystery, mystery, yeah, yeah, the mystery. We're going to solve the mystery, the whodunit. But anyway, you know, at that point, it was just didn't really feel like necessarily doing that. But in the moment, I did it and, and led through that. And the girls were so much fun. We had so much laughter. It was a great bonding moment. In the end, it was a great decision to do that. But it, at one point, it did feel like kind of, what does love or what does Shannon require of me? Was, you know, that's a, another question on that. But sometimes we have to do things that maybe on the surface we don't initially want to do. But love and, and relationship and in the end determines to be the good decision, to be the thing that really leads us forward. And so we think about this question, what does love require of me? It goes against what sometimes we feel like is, what is the least I need to do? I mean, if we're honest, again, we're back to our first question. If we're honest with ourselves, what, what is, what's the least love requires of me? I mean, we want to love. We want to do the right thing. But by nature, there's a selfishness to us that, that we, we want to do what's, what's necessary, but we don't necessarily want to maybe go beyond that because we're tired or we're selfish or we want to save our own money, right? It's, this question, what's so challenging about this is it causes us to have to focus on someone else. These other four questions, yeah, they impact other people that we've asked before, but this one really is how do we live in relationship to other people? And that always doesn't get reciprocated. Even when we do the right things, it doesn't always come back. But what does love require? What's the right thing for me to do? And we don't want other people thinking towards us, right? What's the least I can do to get away with that? Or what's the least thing that, that will feel loving? We don't want to receive that, right? And so we might say, well, the easy thing here is what does love require is a rule that we all know. What is the rule? The golden rule. Everyone knows the golden rule, right? So anyway, there's nobody here that doesn't know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you, right? There's a version of this in, in, in most religions, and, and it's something that is even just in our culture. Like, just, you know, do to others like you would want them to do to you. And so we think that's a great foundation, and even Jesus acknowledges this. We read it in the Bible in Matthew 7, verse 12. Here's how he said it. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. He's really saying, take the law, the Old Testament, the law, all the teachings, and all the prophets. This is at the essence. This is what it all boils down to. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And we kind of go, okay, well, we can stop at this point, right? I mean, this is a good foundation. But Jesus says, yes, while that summarizes the Old Testament as the essence, what we're going to look at today is he says, you know, I'm going to give you a new commandment. I'm actually going to take this up, not just a notch, but I'm going to take this up several notches. And while it's good to ask, do unto others what you would want them to do to you, what I'm going to ask of you now takes it up a whole new level. And when we follow this new commandment, when we go this direction, it changes relationships. And it requires a lot from us, but it leads us down a much different path, and it has a world-changing impact. And that's not an overstatement. It truly does have a world-changing impact. So we're going to look at what this new commandment is, and the context in which Jesus taught it and what it means to us. So what is the new command that he gave his disciples? We read it in John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Still wants us to love each other, but now he changes the dynamic. It's not just about how the other person would want, you know, do to them as you would want to have it done, or even what maybe you think they would want. Love each other as I have. So Jesus becomes the new standard. For followers of Jesus, as we look one, to one another, it's how do we love like Jesus? That raises up a few notches, doesn't it? 
I mean, if I think about a room full of people that are loving like Jesus, what kind of impact would that have? A world full of people that love like Jesus. So how did Jesus love is what we have to look at. How do we understand that? What is, how does that inform us? Andy Stanley said this. He said, Jesus' new, all-encompassing command was far less complicated than the prevailing system, but it was far more demanding. It's far less complicated. Just love like Jesus did, but it demands a lot. So this is the new command he gave his disciples, but Jesus didn't just teach it. He didn't just say, you know, let me just give you some theology and, and you guys should do this. He, he modeled it, he exampled it, and he taught it in a very specific context, and he shared this new commandment to them with them at the end of this time. And so we're going to look at this context, and we're going to find that in John chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles or on your phones, uh, follow along with John chapter 13. We'll have some scriptures on the screen as well. So in John chapter 13, what we read is the context of this new commandment. Jesus is sitting down with his disciples for a final meal, as we call it, the Last Supper. And this was, they were, they were celebrating the Passover, and so he was gathering his disciples, but while they were gathering to celebrate Passover, Jesus knew something else. He knew that this would be his last meal with his disciples, that what was about to go down that weekend would change the course of history. So if you're getting ready to have a meal with somebody or you're getting together with friends or maybe you've been visiting them, there's something about that last meal together. But now Jesus knows this isn't just the last meal for until I see you like, you know, a week or from now or a year from now. This was his last meal before everything he would endure and, uh, and he would go through. So he wanted to impart to them something really important. And so in this context, they gather at the house. He's prepared this, this, this meal at, 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 you know, in a place. And so they gather at the table, and we, you know, we have all those great pictures of that, you know, those renderings, we, firsthand accounts of that meal. They all sat on one side of the table. It was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know why they did that. That was kind of strange. But um, <laughs> so he's at the t Last Supper. They, they, they're sitting down. They're eating. And then, you know, in the midst of all that, something, Jesus gets up from the table, and it confuses the disciples. And we read about it in verses uh, 4 and 5. He says, so he got up from the table, Jesus did. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying with, with the towel he had around him. It's kind of strange. Imagine being at the meal. Come over to our house in the middle of the meal. I'm just like, Mark, where does Mark go? And I go and I get a basin. And I say, just turn your chair around and let me start washing your feet. I mean, in our context especially, that would feel really strange. Now, back in Jesus' day, the, the foot washing itself wasn't necessarily a strange phenomenon because that was part of the practice. That's what you did. A good host offered the, um, his guests to wash their feet. So either they would have a basin by the, by the front door when they came in and they could wash their feet because... Back in the day, rewind the clock, right? Wearing sandals, dusty roads, nothing, you know, paved in that climate. So your feet would get really dirty. They would get tired. And being able to go into someone's home and have your feet in some cool water, cleaned, allows you to come into that home to feel refreshed. And it was something that the host did. It was either the host, you know, would have a servant do that or would provide the, the water. Now, I remember uh, back it wasn't a foot washing, and that, well, it was, but not in, the, in this sense. Back when uh, I, I hiked the Grand Canyon from rim to river to rim, a big, long hike, and, and when we started that hike, we, we went, you know, you go down first, and if you guys have been hiking, you know that downhill can sometimes be even harder on your feet, right? You're constantly going down, and after 5,000, you know, feet of descent back down to the bottom of the canyon, 
uh, feet were tired, and we stopped and had something to eat, and flowing through the canyon is the Colorado River, and it's like really cold, you know, it's really cold with fresh water, and I remember taking off my sock, my shoes and socks, and just sticking my feet in that water and being like, wow, oh, that just felt so cleansing and refreshing, and like, it just brought new life. And so foot washing was, was a way that just refreshed and renewed and brought people back into the, you know, to enjoy the meal together. And, uh, and so that was common practice. But what was odd is that this took place during the meal. Like that would have happened as you came in. So we don't know. Were their feet not washed? Was there not a basin provided? Nobody did it. Or maybe they had them washed already. We don't know. But it doesn't seem like anybody had washed the feet. So Jesus goes, and now he starts with one disciple, and he just starts washing their feet. And he goes to the next one, and he washes their feet. And he washes the feet, and he continues, and he's just washing feet, and he's drying them. And then we come to Peter. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, like, what are, you, what are you thinking? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. So you just pause there for a second. You go, okay, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. What didn't Peter understand yet that someday he would understand? What did Jesus know that, Peter, you don't get it now, but you're going to get it in the future? See, we, we know now in hindsight, we know what happened in the story. We know that this was the beginning of the, the, the Passion Weekend, right, where, where, where there were those days where Jesus was going to suffer and die and eventually be nailed to a cross and be raised to new life. That was what was coming, and that was going to shed a whole new light on this experience of what was happening in the room at that time. It's going to have spiritual significance. There, there, there's a spiritual perspective that in this foot washing that, that there's more going on than just dirty feet being washed. Something else here, Peter, you don't see it, you don't understand it right now, but, but there's, a, there's a cleansing and a cleaning and a washing that you're going to need that, that goes far beyond even what we're doing with feet right now. So just hold on. You're going to understand one day, even if right now you don't. Peter he hears this and his response is in verse 8, no, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. No. <laughs> Jesus, you're, you're not going to wash my feet. Why did Peter object so vehemently to Jesus washing his feet? What was it about that? Is it just, was it just embarrassment? Was it pride? What, what was in the way? Why did, Jesus, why did Peter not want Jesus to wash his feet? And I think about why do we resist when it comes to Jesus doing something for us, cleansing us? What is it that gets in the way? Now, again, for, for Peter, it was, we could say there was, a, there was embarrassment, but it wasn't the embarrassment about having his feet washed. That might be something in our culture where we go, I don't know, that's kind of strange. I'd be embarrassed by that. I think in some ways it might be as, as uncomfortable as like if you've ever gone through TSA and, uh, you know, you're flying somewhere and then you go through the security and then they say like, hey, stand to the side and then you get the full pat down every single time. Do you guys ever, oh wait, is that, <laughs> no, if you've gotten, you know, you've gotten the pat down, you get the wand, it's kind of uncomfortable, you stand there, and they're like, you know, but you just deal with it, it's just part of the culture, but if that was in another context, that might be kind of strange. So, in that sense, it wasn't that there was embarrassment around having his, his feet washed, but I think there was a sense, his embarrassment was in the sense of imbalance. This is the idea, like, you know, who, this, is, this is Jesus, this is my rabbi, this is the one who I'm serving. This is the one who I'm following. This is the one who I look up to. This is the one who I honor. Why would I receive that from him? You know, we serve up, not down, right? That's kind of in our culture. You serve up to people of higher status and position and whatever realm that is. And so it was in, in that case as well. And so there was an awkwardness. There was an uncomfortableness. Now, 
in the, the, the church of God, which we are a part of a movement of churches, the Meadow Park, we practice literal foot washing. We have baptism, which we practice, right? We actually baptize and, and, and do that. We, we, we celebrate communion, the Eucharist. We, you know, the first Sunday, typically, of, of every month, we'll be doing that next Sunday. We take communion. And we also practice foot washing. And the idea of foot washing, if you've ever had your feet washed, if you've ever done this, it's a powerful experience. And the sad thing is, most people kind of go, not me. Not me. I'm not doing that. That's, that's, just, that's just, you know. That's not literal. Jesus didn't really mean to wash people's feet. I mean, he's just speaking like in general terms. But if you've ever had your feet washed, one thing you'll know, and those who've had and been a part of a foot washing where you wash someone else's feet and they wash your feet, which part is sometimes the harder to do, the more awkward to to do? To have your feet washed, believe it or not. (laughs) To have your feet washed. It's one thing, you know, it's not necessarily the most comfortable thing to wash someone else's feet. Um, It's a tumbling experience. But to sit there and to have somebody else wash your feet, that's just a little different, a little strange, a little awkward. We're not used to somebody in front of us, you know, basically kneeling down, taking our feet that aren't, you know, even if we've worn shoes and socks, you know, they can be kind of clammy and can have a little fuzz between the toes. I mean, you know, let's just be honest, right? A little lint from the socks, all that's good stuff. And you wash that person's feet. But to have somebody do that to you, it's, it's humbling. And, and so Peter was like, no, no, Lord, you're, never, you're not going to wash my feet. One, because of who you are. And, and, and just this, I can't have you bending down, serving me in that way. And then Jesus replies in an interesting way. He said, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Did Jesus really mean that? I mean, like, if, Peter, if you're not going to let me wash you, you don't belong to me. What's, Jesus at times spoke in, in sometimes what felt like cryptic language or what, trying to understand deeper things and truths, and sometimes it was just plain as day. Was he being literal? What's going on here? Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. The emphasis is on I. There's a couple things on I. If I it, it matters who is washing the feet, that Jesus is doing that. But I want to focus on this particular point, on the belonging. You won't belong to me. Washing of feet creates a sense of communion and belonging. When we wash feet, we, there's a sense of connection, communion, belonging. It creates a bond. We feel connected to the one who serves us. And what's interesting is it, it, it happens especially when the one who is greater serves the one who is lesser. And I put that in quotes. It has to do with position. It has to do with place. Now, anyone, and we should serve anyone, anytime, but there's something especially powerful when a parent washes the feet of a child, when a teacher washes the feet of a student. When someone in power washes the feet of someone who's not in power. When somebody in the majority washes the feet of somebody in the minority. When somebody who has means washes the feet of somebody who doesn't have means. When somebody who's in the in-group washes the feet of somebody on the out, in the out-group. It's when we experience those kind of moments that the humbling of somebody to serve in that way creates a bond, it creates a connection. And Jesus is saying, unless I wash your feet, unless we allow the Son of God... To wash our feet, we don't have a part of him. That's how much he longs to have a part of us and desires for us to have a relationship with him. And so Peter, Peter, I need to wash your feet, both in the literal sense right now to show and to demonstrate this humility and this love that I have for you, and in the spiritual sense that unless I wash you, unless I clean you, unless I make you new, you will not be a part of the new kingdom and in this relationship. 
And I love Peter's response after Jesus is like, okay, let me just explain to you a little bit. You won't have a part of me. This shows how much Peter longed to be in a relationship with Jesus, right? Here's how he replied. Then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet, then, then, then all of me. He was basically ready to have like a mini baptism in that little basin right there. Like, I'm going all in. I don't know how, but Lord, if it means uh, belonging, if it means connection with you, then, then I want you to clean every part of me. Right here, then, then go for it. Then I'm all in. All of a sudden, it changes in him when he understood this is w- w- what's going on here. But Jesus says back to him, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. So again, in their culture, right, I mean, if somebody bathed that morning, they were clean, you know, throughout the rest of the day, but through walking, their feet were dirty. So that was the, the dirtiest part. And that's exactly the part that Jesus wanted to wash. That's exactly the part where Jesus said, that's what you need to allow me to come and wash. Let me put it this way. We think we can only come to Jesus when we are clean, but Jesus asks us to bring the dirtiest parts of our lives to him. What does love require of me? What did Jesus want to do? He said, bring me the dirtiest parts. Don't just bring the part that looks good, that is clean, you know, your Sunday morning self that acts like you maybe have it all together. Bring me that part of of what took place in the car on the way to church. Bring me that part that took place at home. Bring me that part that took place in the office. Bring me that part when you were alone and, and the things that you were ashamed of. Bring me those parts. Bring me that thing in the past that you haven't brought to the light of day. Those are the parts Jesus is saying, bring to me. That's the very place I want to go, and that's where I want to restore relationship to you and together with you. The story continues. After washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again and sat down, and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. He's giving them this model. He's saying if, if, the Lord, if, if, if God himself, the Messiah, if Lord, Jesus Christ, washes feet, how much more should there be nothing that is too low, too beneath us to, to go and to do and to humble ourselves? You ought to wash each other's feet. Understand who he is. You cannot wash feet without humility. You cannot wash feet without bending low and serving someone else. You can't truly love and serve others if you don't humble yourself. That's what's so difficult about this question. What does love require of me? There's a humbling there. It's not just what's in my own interest and my future and my decisions and what's best for me. It's about the others. It's about what's the impact. And where do I maybe have to take second place or third place or maybe go last so that somebody else can have the right place? We have to humble ourselves. And then Jesus was very clear as he continues, and he says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Go and wash feet. Go and wash feet. Do that. Do that both as a, as a, as a literal practice, as a way of just humbling ourselves and serving one another and being reminded as we would in baptism and communion. We're reminded of these eternal truths, but not just because we want someone else to have clean feet. That's a wonderful blessing and gift you can give somebody. Again, whatever, if you, if you want to put that in quotes, right? What is clean feet? What does it look like to bless somebody else? But washing feet goes further than just having clean feet. It even goes further than just serving somebody else in humility and love. The idea of foot washing goes to this. Washing another's feet is a tangible demonstration of Jesus' love and sacrifice on the cross. 
when we wash feet, engaging the untouchable, dirty, unlovable places in someone's life, we are bringing Jesus to others and demonstrating salvation. It's more than just serving. There's something spiritual that happens when we get down, when we humble ourselves, when we serve someone else. We're, we're reenacting the kingdom of God. We're reenacting the gospel that Jesus is saying, look, there's a, there's a cleansing. There's the dirtiest parts. There's the things that need touching. When we do that, we are modeling what Jesus did for us. And it's a way that we bring that, that hope and that healing. And what does, he, what, what does he say? He says, do as I have done to you. Loving others like Jesus is not focused on feeling love, but about doing love. It's not just the commandment, you know, when you feel like it, when somebody's good to you, when someone's nice, then do the loving thing. When your heart is in that right place, then you do it. No, do it. You just serve. It's not just about believing love and feeling love. It's about doing it, getting in there and loving. And after all of that has taken place, and as Jesus modeled the serving, and they were just still humbled by, who's Jesus is serving me, and all these things he says, then he comes to that point that we began with. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. How did Jesus love? We see this, and he says, this is the example. Something as, as simple as just a little bit of water, washing the feet, drying it, and we think, what's, what's the big deal? And in this moment, in this act, Jesus demonstrated something powerful. This is a model and example of how we are to love one another. Jesus willing to go to that extent. But see, Jesus didn't just stop there, right? This took place a few days before the ultimate sacrifice, when Jesus laid down his life at the cross. When Jesus went all the way to lay down his life and say, look, this is my life sacrificed for your life. In John 15, 13, Jesus said, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The ultimate sacrifice. And sometimes laying down our life might literally mean we have to lay down our life physically. You put your life on the line. But many times laying down our life looks different. Laying down your life is laying down your agenda, laying down your pride, lay, lay, laying down your priorities, laying down your resources, sticking it through and saying, I'm going to lay down my life for the benefit and sake of someone else's. And that's one of the hardest decisions, but this is what love compels us to. This is what God calls us to do. So what does love require of me? What does it look like to wash another's feet? What does it look like to sacrifice and to serve? What does love look like? So in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, the church wanted to know, how do we live this out? Okay, Jesus taught this. How do we live this out? How do we experience this in, in everyday life? What does love really look like? If this is the relationship question, if, you're, if you've been around the Bible at all and reading, you know there's one place you go if you want to read a lot about love, and it's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. In the love chapter, if you've been to a wedding, uh, you likely have heard something from this chapter where we read about just the beauty of love, and you can have all these gifts and all these abilities and can do all these great things, but Paul says, if you don't have love, you're nothing. Without love, it doesn't matter. Everything you can attain, without love, it means nothing. And then he goes into a section where it tells us what love does and what love doesn't do. And so now, let's get practical. What does love require me? What does love look like? This, this passage gives us a glimpse, and today I actually want to read it to you from the message uh, paraphrase. 
The message is a, is a version of, of Scripture that just takes the words and puts a different uh, angle on them, and so we can sometimes hear things from a fresh perspective. What does love require of me? It says this, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others. Love isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. But love takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. It puts up with anything. It trusts God always. It always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. That's a tall order for love, isn't it? That's a tall order. And sometimes we read this, we see these things and go, yeah, that would, man, wow, that's, that'd be awesome. But let's get personal. You guys want to get a little personal? You know, one way to make this personal, if this is what love does and if this is what love requires, then let's take out the word love and substitute our own name in. What does love require of you? How would you read this different if you substitute out these spaces and if I start saying, Mark never gives up? Mark cares more for others than for himself. Mark doesn't want what he doesn't have. Ooh, all this stuff. It doesn't feel so good when my own name's in there. Right? I think love should be about that. I think others should be about that. But when I see that in myself, if you put your name in there, read this with your name in there. Mark doesn't strut. It's got to knock me down a few levels. Shrink my head. The pride, right? Mark doesn't have a swelled head. Oh, there it is, the next line, right? <laughs> Mark doesn't force himself on others. Being forceful. Put your name in there. Mark isn't always me first. Mark doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Put your name in there. Keeps no record of wrongs. Is that you? You, you don't bring up the past. You don't pull those things up when you're in an argument and a fight. Love lets those things go. Mark doesn't revel when others grovel. Mark takes pleasure in flowering of the truth. Mark puts up with anything. Truer words have never been spoken. It's amazing. <laughs> Mark trusts God always. Mark always looks for the best. Mark never looks back. Mark keeps going to the end. Do this at home. Ta read this chapter. Go to 1 Corinthians 13 this week and put your name in the place of love. And just ask God, am I being love? Am I doing what love requires of me in the situations that I'm in? We all have room to grow. And we all need the love of Christ in our lives to be able to do this. We're all going to fail. We're all not going to live up to this because the Bible says God is love. And we know we aren't God, but we aspire and we grow and we ask for God's love to help us in these very ways. And that chapter ends, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So what does love require of you? You think about your life right now. You think about your situation. You think about the relationships you're in. What does love require of you? Maybe this very week, maybe even today, it's time to send a message, to write an email, to send that text. Hey, I know we haven't talked in a while. You want to grab a coffee? Maybe you need to set up a Zoom long distance. Maybe you need to sit down and write a letter, write a card, and really put your thoughts down and get clear and say, you know what, it's time to, to take action in this relationship. What do you need to do? 
Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to serve? Maybe there's somebody that you work with that you've just been blowing off and it's time for you to wash their feet. And to serve them in some way, to do something that says, you know what, I'm going to honor them and I'm going to take a humble position. I'm going to get off my high horse and I'm just going to serve. What does love require of you? Serving a person you're struggling with. Making an apology. Offering for forgiveness for this person that you've been holding it over their head for who knows how long. Love requires me to let that go and to serve, to build a bridge. We're not going to regret the decisions that we make when we do what love requires. We don't always know how it's going to be received, but we know that we can have a clear conscience and we live with integrity before God. Now, after Jesus said all those things, he said, I give you this new commandment. The very next line he says, and we're going to close up here with this, says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. After he does all that, after he says everything else, here's this new commandment. Then he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The way you love, that's going to be the evidence. That's what people are going to see. They're not just going to hear your theology. They're not going to hear you what you put on your signs and how you protest and shout and yell and, and scream. It's how you love. That's how they're going to know you are my disciples. The way in which you treat one another, the way that you humble yourself, the way that you serve one another, that is the community. That's the body of Christ. And it begins right here among us. It begins in our own homes and it extends out into the world around us. And that's our calling card. And that's the image and that's the picture of who the church is and what the church is to be all about. What does love require of me? So we've looked at these questions this whole, this whole series. And we think about this as you step back and you look and you go, okay, God, am I, you know, I want to live a life without regrets. I want to live in a way that honors you. I'm going to be honest with myself. I'm not going to just lie to myself. I'm not going to rationalize stuff away. I'm going to be, if, if I'm making a poor decision, at least I'm going to own it. I know what I'm doing. And God, help me write the kind of story that's, that, that, that I'm going to be proud to tell my kids and my grandkids. I don't want to be hiding stuff. And God, if there is stuff, I want to bring that in the open because I know you forgive and restore and renew. You will wash me in my dirtiest place. God, if there's in my conscience, if I'm just unsettled in, in, inside, God, I want, to, I want to call that out and I want to lean into that. God, give me a clear conscience before God and before people. God, I want to be wise. Like James says in the Bible, God, I need wisdom. Give me wisdom. Pray for it. Seek it out and ask God to give that to you. And as you look through others, say, God, it's not just about advancing everything that I have, but God, it's about serving others. How do I bend my knee? How do I humble myself and do what love requires to those around me and to those that I encounter? You know, when it comes down to all this, this is a high order, but that's why we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's why we come back to Jesus and say, I can't do this on my own. I'm not capable to continually live at, at this level. God, I need you to help me. I need you to give me that perspective, to give me that heart, to give me that, that understanding, to give me that wisdom, to give me that vision of my future, to, to help me see that story that you want to write in my life. And that's why we come to Christ. And as we talked about today, Jesus is standing here with, with towel and basin, and he's saying, I want to wash your feet. I want you to wash the dirtiest place in your life, the part that, that maybe you're most ashamed of or you're trying to hide. That's the part I want to cleanse and wash and make new. And unless you let me wash you, you don't have a part of me. I want to have a part of you. But I'm going to wait for you to receive that. Man, would we be like Peter? Then <laughs> all of me, Lord, then let's, let's go. I'm all in. That's how much I want to just come to you and know that we are being received in love.
because of what Christ has done for us. The best decision you will ever make in your life when we're talking about better decisions, no regrets, is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to humble yourself, to say, Lord, I lay down my life. I give it to you, my sin, my guilt, my shame. I come to you, the Lord of heaven, the God of all creation, my Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins so that I could be made clean and can walk in freedom. Best decision you can ever make is today your day that you allow Jesus to wash your feet, to cleanse your soul, to make you whole and new. And even if you've been a follower of Christ, there's places in our lives that we need to come back to God and say, God, I need your cleansing. I need you in my life. Let's take a moment to bow our heads in prayer and just ask God to come to those places. And right now, just a couple moments of silence. I want you to reflect. Where is that place in your life that you least want Jesus to see, but that you need to bring to him to wash and to cleanse? God is faithful and comes to you in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for modeling such a beautiful act of servanthood. God, that you, the, the God of all creation, the King of the universe, the Savior of the world would bend your knee, touch our dirty feet, and wash us clean. God, that you would come to those places that now we can understand more fully in light of the cross and in light of the resurrection, God, what you have come to do to set us on a new path, to give us new life and new hope that our sins and our shame and our guilt don't have to hold us back, God, but that those are forgiven, fully washed clean and made new. Help us to walk in that freedom. Father, to choose you again and again and again because you have chosen us. Father, for anyone here this morning who does not have that relationship with you, but maybe today says for the first time, God, I surrender my life to you. I want to belong to you. God, we celebrate that act of, of trust and of faith and of love. And God, your promise to forgive and to set us on a new path for now and for all eternity. So God, may we come boldly. Father, if we've gotten off the path, if we've gone down places and directions that, that we regret, that we're shameful of, that are not leading us to where we need to go, Father, today we turn to you and ask for your guidance and for your wisdom and for your love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.